Turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, as we continue to look at God's Word this morning. This is a series that we uh, uh, began about 11 or 12 weeks back, uh, entitled Living and Looking, Living for Christ and Looking for His Return. And that was really the way that 1 Thessalonians is broken down. And, um, but 1 Thessalonians, living and looking for Christ, the first part of 1 Thessalonians, there's five chapters. The first three primarily really is Paul's introduction, has a lot of uh, uh, really up through about the middle part of chapter 4, some real practical things. But then the latter part of 1 Thessalonians through the middle of chapter 4 and 5 have to do with the return and the second coming of Christ and probably some of the most significant passages concerning the second coming are in 1 Thessalonians. So that'll be fun to get uh, into that. But this morning I would direct your attention uh, to your Bibles. Hope you brought your Bibles uh, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we are going to read, you can follow along as I read, uh, verses 1 through 8. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. And it will be on the screen if that is uh, more convenient. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an, inv- is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the authority of the word of God. Father, we pray that these words are, again, as Paul commended the Thessalonians, that these are not words of men and opinion that has been shaped and bent by the culture, but these instructions, these admonitions are the Word of God. So, Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds today to be receptive to your Word. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be that which is acceptable in your sight. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The sermon title this morning is Sexual Purity. Now, I expect a lot of high fives and amens throughout this message. Everybody's going to go into a, they want to, don't be afraid not to breathe, you know, or, or flinch. But the title is The Priority or Sexual Purity, The Priority of Sexual Purity uh, this morning. Now, as I said, in the first three chapters, Paul has had a lengthy introduction. And remember, Paul is giving some instructions 
to this young church. He hasn't been able to revisit them. He's receiving a report from Timothy that says they're doing well, they're growing in the faith. But in chapter 3, verse 10, he says, I want to supply what is lacking in your faith. So Paul, there are some things that maybe when Timothy returned, he shared with them some uh, issues and concerns that the church was having that Paul the apostle needed to address, that Paul needed to give attention to, some teaching of that perhaps the church was struggling with, or maybe they just need to hear uh, some more uh, injunction from God's word, whatever the situation was. But if you look on chapter 3, towards the end of chapter 3, uh, you'll notice that Paul ends by uh, uh, telling them and challenging them to continue in their spiritual growth, that he wants them to continue to grow. Uh, he says, you know, that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before the Lord. So Paul is encouraging them to grow in their spiritual faith. And this is kind of a transition. Remember, there weren't chapters and verse numbers when Paul wrote it. And he wants them to not just know the truth, but he wants them to live the truth, right? It's not just enough to know the truth. He wants you to live the truth. And so Paul gives some very practical uh, instructions about having a genuine faith, a genuine faith that touches every area of life. Do you realize there's not a part of our lives that God is not interested in being Lord over? There isn't one facet of our life that God is not Lord over and wants to be Lord over uh, as we allow the Spirit's work in our life. God's truth touches every key on our keyboard of our lives. And so it's not surprising that the very first thing that Paul addresses as he kind of transitions to kind of finish up with giving them maybe some a few things, as he said, he wants to supply uh, as he said back in chapter 2.10, he wants to supply uh, them what they're lacking, or chapter 3.10, he wants to kind of finish out, round out some areas in their life where they're lacking some instruction and teaching, and one of the first areas that he addresses has to do with sexual purity. And so this morning, as we look at verses 1 through 8, Paul, as he addresses this uh, to the church both then and now... We're going to look at three aspects on avoiding the destructive influences of sexual immorality and pursuing sexual purity. Paul knew, as you and I both know, that sexual impurity, sexual immorality uh, is destructive, destructive to our life and destructive to other lives around us. And so this morning, the first point is really the title, but it's the first point, and that is, number one, the priority of sexual purity, which is verses 1 through 3. Paul writes, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Here's how you're to live your life and live a life that is pleasing to God, just as you're doing that now, you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you. In other words, it's not as though you haven't heard these things before. How many of you know that sometimes you need some reminders, right? For you know the instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. 
For this is the will of God. You want to know what the will of God is? This is your day. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain, you avoid sexual immorality. Now, a couple weeks ago, we just spent time on unpacking that word sanctification and talking about it in a broad sense. And now Paul is going to kind of zero in and land the plane on it in an area in which sanctification or uh, holiness, if you will, needs to be applicable to our life, that we need to grow in. Paul knew that sexual sin is something that the enemy is always using. We live like, listen, the day that Paul lived in, our culture today, we are a sexually saturated culture. Would you agree with that? It's okay to breathe and nod. Nobody's going to think you're weird, all right? Every day, we are bombarded by the culture's sewage that is just pouring out. Pornography is a $50 billion industry, bigger than some major uh, Fortune 500 companies combined because there is an appetite for this type of thing. Sex sells and people buy it. But it's interesting that uh, the world that we live in, we think that, the, that this is a very unique culture. It's never been as bad as it has been. Well, maybe, maybe that's true in one sense, but it's interesting as you study the period of time that the Apostle Paul lived in in the first century, it's interesting the parallels of that culture to our own culture today. In Paul's day, for example, marriages in the Greek and Roman world were really set up uh, by family arrangements. Young men in their 20s and young ladies in their teens had barely uh, met before they were married, that they were done by arrangements. So marriage, the concept of marriage, remember this is a pagan, uh, non, they don't even have the the Jewish covenantal law. These are non-Jews. These are uh, pagan uh, people uh, growing up and living in a world that has no reference point uh, to, to what, we, what the Jews had, at least in the covenantal law, uh, but that marriage was simply a legal arrangement for the exchanging of money, property, goods, or the ability to have children. And what that did within the culture is it created an environment in the Greek and Roman world that where most people didn't expect uh, husbands to be committed to their marriages because it was just kind of a social arrangement. It was just, it had a function, but, but the acceptance of husbands, men, pursuing illicit sexual activity was commonplace and accepted. Uh, prostitution was a business that generated income, and it was seen in that same way. Innkeepers who kept, you know, what we would call hotels, innkeepers kept slave girls for the sexual entertainment of the cult of the customers and adulterous activity was so widespread that an emperor in Rome before Christ was born around 300 BC had to issue laws to regulate marital conduct because of the adultery and the immorality that was so widespread that it, they even had to figure out some way to try to harness it and control it. There was a Greek statesman that, again, lived in this time period, about 300 years before the birth of Christ, but his, his, uh, he was a Greek philosopher statesman by the name of uh, 
Demosthenes, and he really illustrates kind of the mindset. I just want you to see that really they weren't too far different than our culture. Demosthenes made this statement. He said, mistresses, talking about husbands, mistresses we keep for our pleasure, concubines for our day-to-day physical well-being, and wives to bear us legitimate children. That's the mindset. That's the culture. And it really isn't too far beyond our own culture today. In fact, in some religious practices in the Greco-Roman world at this time, actually encouraged this type of behavior because of the false religions had temple cultic prostitutes that sexual immorality and engaging with prostitutes was seen as some type of act of worship in these pagan temples. Thessalonica, interestingly, where Paul is writing to this young church, Thessalonica had a cult, uh, Kabiri, that sanctioned sexual relationships that uh, were seen as part of, again, this this, uh, pagan worship. Now, what Paul is addressing, he's not addressing the culture. He's addressing his concern isn't the culture outside the church. He's addressing conduct within the church. You see, we can get really uh, obsessed with what is going on in the culture, and yet we need to be concerned about the culture in our own lives, in our own heart, as well as in our own church. And so Paul, that's why he's addressing uh, this issue with the Thessalonians. Now, just by way of a quick reminder, because, you know, you assume that everybody understands certain things concerning uh, what the Bible teaches about sexuality. And by the way, this is a PG message, so uh, uh, just for FYI, I don't think we have any young kids, but there won't be anything that, uh, my goodness, if you figure out probably what they, uh, you, what you and I might have heard at 17, 18, uh, sadly, some children are exposed at 5, 6, 7, and 8, which is another sickening uh, part of our of the tragedy and fallenness of our culture. But verse 3, Paul says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. The Bible is not silent regarding human sexuality. In case you didn't get the word, God invented sex. All right? It was, his, it was his idea, all right? Not Hugh Hefner's, all right? So the Bible is not silent about human sexuality. And when God created male and female, Genesis 1.31, he said, before the fall, he said, this is what? Good. If God says it's good, it's good. God created the human race, listen, male, biologically male, and biologically female, God created two distinctly different sets of sexual characteristics identified as male and female. And primarily, there were two purposes. One, God told them to replenish, uh, to multiply, to be fruitful, to propagate other human beings by their sexual uh, activity. But also, the Bible is clear that God has also created sexuality for the human pleasure of a husband and a w- and wife. Now, tragically, because of the fall, because of sin, Genesis 3, what happened as a result of the fall 
is, like in every other area, the most vile distortions of God's image bearers resulted because of sin and because of the fall. You know, in the Bible, you've heard me say this many times, that when the Bible presents something negatively, uh, there's a principle you always have to keep in mind. Is it being descriptive or is it prescriptive? Descriptive is, is the Bible just describing something that has happened? All right? Just describing. It's not saying, you know, go and do likewise. That would be prescriptive. When the doctor writes you a prescription, he's prescribing this is what you ought to do. So just because certain things are in the Bible, distinguish the difference. People will say, well, such and such is in the Bible. For example, after the fall, you had in Genesis 4, early on, the next chapter, you had polygamy that was practiced by uh, a character by the name of Lamech. Again, you had the distortion of human sexuality that immediately followed the fall. Polygamy, Genesis 4. Genesis 16, Abraham had sexual relations with a slave girl, Hagar, that was adulterous. It doesn't matter if they were engaged in polygamy and we try to sometimes explain it away. God never prescribed it that way. He didn't create Adam and Eve and Sally and Debbie. No, one man for one woman, one woman for one man, right? So Abraham... Engaged with Hagar in adultery. Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19 became synonymous with homosexuality. Interesting, those who reject the authority of the Bible say that the issue in Sodom and Gomorrah was not the sexual perversion, but it was their lack of hospitality to the angels when they came to the city. Yeah, okay. Uh, Lot's daughters in that same chapter, you remember Lot's daughters? They were influenced and they engaged in an incestuous relationship with Lot, their father. Shechem, in Genesis 34 too, one of the, uh, uh, Shechem raped Dinah, who was the daughter, a daughter of Jacob and Leah. Judah engaged in the services of a prostitute in Genesis 38. We're not even out of Genesis. You hear what I'm saying? So, so we think all of this is, you know, no. The Bible is very clear and the Bible is very unambiguous concerning biblical teaching. And I want to summarize, this is just kind of a side note, summarize three quick principles of biblical summary of what the Bible teaches about sexuality. Very brief, three principles. One, sexual activity is to be between a man and a woman, a married man and a married woman to each other. Let me be real specific. A, they're married to each other, male and female. You with me, all right? That is, uh, therefore, Genesis 2, 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Interestingly, if somebody says, well, that was outdated. Nobody believes that anymore. Jesus in Matthew 19, verse 5, affirmed that very thing when he was questioned on divorce. He cited the historicity and validity of exactly the Word of God concerning marriage, but not just marriage, but affirmed that God created male and female. Jesus affirmed those things in Matthew 19.5. Secondly, 
Sexual activity is to be after marriage and not before. Well, I love when it gets quiet. <laughs> Hebrews 13.4, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Marriage. And, I, you know, I, I be, I'll say this, and I hope this isn't the case of anybody. I don't know if it is, so I would say it out of ignorance. But I've even known, unfortunately, some seniors who, because of their spouses dying or whatever, end up kind of a living, to get, living together and not being married because they don't want to lose benefits. Let me tell you something. That's adultery. That's immoral. You need to trust God with your needs and finances and not justify immorality as a means to an end. That's free. That's free, all right? Third principle, sexual activity. Sexual activity is for mutual gratification between legitimate marriage partners. It's not just for procreation, but Paul helps us in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 3 through 5. And I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. There may be a season where, uh, like, a, like fasting, that we're going to focus on a season of prayer and fasting, and you may... Uh, separate in that way. And then afterwards, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now let's go back to 1 Thessalonians 4. Sexual sin, like every other sin, results in our unwillingness to obey and to do what God says. Paul said in Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We are to present our bodies are created by God, and God calls believers to present our bodies. Notice the connection between worship, the mercy of God, and our willingness to surrender completely to Him. Do you see how Paul puts that together in Romans chapter 12? But let's go back to verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul says in his counsel to the Thessalonians, we need to be committed to knowing what God says. Ignorance is no excuse. God's Word is clear. He says in verse 2, For you know what instructions we gave you. You know. In other words, we're not telling you something new. You know, and he is commending them. He's, I don't think he's saying this out of some issue that they're not obeying, but he just wants to shore it up because new believers are coming in from this outside culture, and they need to hear this instruction. Paul says, you know what kind of instructions we gave you. Paul understands 
like a house that is anchored to a stone foundation, that a personal faith that is grounded in the Word of God is the only type of foundation that is going to keep your life, your family's life from crumbling when shaken or collapse when threatened. You need to be You need to have a strong foundation, and he reminds them about the instructions we gave you, but notice it and just in any instructions that we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Paul is the apostle. He is the appointed one. And so these were not just his opinions, but these were instructions through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the the Thessalonians, you remember back in chapter 2, Paul commended them Uh, that when they heard the word of God, chapter 2, verse 13, that when they received the word of God, which they heard, they accepted it not as the word of men, but as the word of God. You see, this will fall on deaf ears, all of this, as long as somebody says, well, that's your opinion, that's your thoughts. But notice how the word of God underscores continually from the Lord Jesus this is, not the will, this is not the opinion of man, but of God. You reject this, you're rejecting the will of God. He's wanting to make sure that in this area that touches all of our lives, that we understand that we are following and have his guidance, that it, be, that it is a priority in our life and not just an option whether we're going to obey or not going to obey. So not only got to know what God's word says, but you've got to commit to doing what God says. Now think about it. They had <coughs> one of the greatest preachers and teachers that ever lived, the Apostle Paul, right? They were not lacking for depth of biblical theological knowledge, right? But yet, as much as they had that, they still had to make the, take the responsibility that they were going to obey what they heard. You see, just being in a Bible foundational church, being in a predominantly Christian community, culture, that doesn't guarantee anything. You've got to obey. You've got to say, this is what God says. I need to do this. I need to stop doing this. I knew it would be quiet in here. They had to take responsibility for their spiritual growth. But notice, secondly, sexual purity must not only be a priority in the life of the believer, but the, something we should pursue, the pursuit of sexual purity. The pursuit of sexual purity. Verse 3. For this is the will of God. I mean, make no mistake. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. Your growth. You could say your holiness. Sanctification. Your separation. You're a new creation in Christ. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification. Your holiness. The word says, be holy for I am holy. The Lord says, And here it is, this is the will of God, that you abstain, that you avoid, that you flee from sexual immorality, that you stay completely away from it. You don't see how close to the edges you can get. You need to avoid sexual immorality. 
again, Thessalonica was saturated, like most of that Greek-Roman culture, was saturated in sexual perversion. They saw it just as another biological function. You're hungry, you eat. You want sex, you go have sex. It doesn't matter what there's any constraints. They were immersed in this culture the way that we are slowly being boiled away in our own godless culture. The Bible says in chapter 1 verse 9 that the Thessalonians turned from idols. This meant that as they were converted, they had a different standard. Along this line, look at verse 4, that each one of you, he said, abstain from sexual immorality, verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body and holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Avoid it. Run from it. Flee from it. Be like Joseph. Remember Joseph in uh, Potiphar's house? That when he was being seduced by Potiphar's wife, what did he do? He didn't say, well, you know, let's, you know, let's get a burner phone and let's find out a way we can kind of do this thing. No, he fled so quick she grabbed his coat, had his coat. He got out of there. Flee. Run. Don't negotiate with the enemy. Sexual immorality, in case there's still some question, refers to any form of illicit or sexual behavior outside of what is prescribed in God by God in His Word. And it's not just actions of the body. Jesus, remember? Jesus took it up a notch, didn't He? Remember what Jesus said? He said, but I say to you that everyone who looks, talking to men, looks at a woman and is lust, has lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. You see, sins of the heart, that's the idol factory of our lives. Our hearts are idol factories. And the act is only a response to what has begun in the heart. We are to abstain and learn to control our body. Some of you are familiar with Charles Swindoll. Let me give you something he said that helps us. Charles Swindoll illustrates this when he says this in one of his books, Contagious Christianity. Abstaining begins with possessing our own vessels, our bodies. That is, knowing our own bodies, how our sex drives function, what weakens our self-control, and what strengthens it. Possessing our bodies involves admitting temptations we can't handle and avoiding those enticing situations. Certain conversations with coworkers may lure us and friendly touches may be too personal. Avoid those situations. Some films, books, magazines may ignite lustful passions and some settings may provide opportunities for compromise. Stay away from them. No one, look at this, no one remains pure by accident. But he also says in the latter part of verse 5, he makes this clear distinction to drive it home. He said, learn to control your body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles. Paul uses like the Gentiles as unbelievers, people 
who do not know God. That's what they did. But you're different. You belong to Christ. You shouldn't act as those who do not know God. You know God. You have Jesus. You have the Spirit of God. Therefore, let your bodies reflect that identity. But not only are we to run, avoid sexual immorality, but it's interesting of something he brings up in the first part of verse 6. And this has to do with respecting others by avoiding sexual sin. You see, outside of marriage, the no trespassing sign applies to both parties. It isn't just for one. You see, when somebody involves another person in an illicit, immoral, adulterous, sexual encounter, guess what? They are involving that person into their sin. They become responsible for enticing and luring that person and engaging that person into sin. Sexual sin is saying to God, I don't care if I sin against you, and by the way, I also don't care if I cause this other person to sin against you. Look at what Paul says. Because no one transgresses, transgresses that, let me start over again, verse uh, 6, that no one transgress and wrong his brother or sister in this matter. What matter is he talking about? He's talking about sexual purity. It takes two to what? Tango, right? But unfortunately, when you or the, both parties, you do not want to become guilty of bringing that person into sexual sin because of your inability to control your own mind or body. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 18, 6, and whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to do what? To sin. It would be better for them to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. There are serious consequences when a person disrespects an image bearer and draws them in to their own immorality. In the latter part of verse 6, Paul is saying, you, need, you and I need to take sexual purity seriously. He says, because the Lord is an avenger of all these things. Is an avenger. We could say, is, is judges all these things, as we told you beforehand, and solemnly warned you. Listen, God takes sexual sin and impurity seriously. It's a big deal. It's a big deal in Scripture. It's not just something. God takes it seriously. Ephesians 5.3 But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. He's writing Christians. He's writing Christians. He's writing the church. It's like Paul's writing to Christians in the church. We, hopefully we are beyond any naivete in thinking that sexual impurity and immorality has, does not infiltrate the church and Christians. It seems as though it's almost a weekly basis that I see some report or some information of a pastor or a church leader who has fallen in sexual immorality. Look at what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6. Verse 15, 
Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Actually, he begins, I don't have it up there, verse 13, that your body is not meant for sexual immorality. Your body is not intended for sexual immorality. Do you realize? Well, I won't go there. All right. Stay on track, Tim. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Verse 18, flee, run from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, it doesn't belong to you. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And the third, the priority of sexual purity, the pursuit of sexual purity. And the last is pleasing God by our sexual purity. Look at Chapter 4, verse 1. It's okay if it's not on the screen. I don't know if I put it up there. He says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk, that's living, walking, our Christian walk, how you ought to walk and to what? How you're to please God. We are called to please God. And we please God by maintaining sexually pure lives. God's approval must be our passion. Verse 8, Therefore, Paul says, whoever disregards this, disregards not man. This is important. Doesn't just blow off, oh, you know, that's your opinion, pastor. But disregards God who gives His Holy Spirit in you. Pleasing God means living a sexually pure life. Disrespecting or rejecting God means living an impure sexually habitual lifestyle, life. You want to follow God and be pleasing God? Follow God's word and his pattern on this issue. You want to reject God? Live a life to your own self. It's not complicated. Jesus said, if you love me, if you love me, you will do what? You will keep my commandments. And he would say in John 14, 24, the one who doesn't love me does not keep my words. You see, the power that Paul mentions there in the latter part of verse 8, if we are to live walk, be pleasing to God in a sexually pure way, we only can do that in the power of the Holy Spirit. We can only do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. I won't take time now, but sometime if you want to do some Bible, just marking your Bible, notice in verses 1 through 8, 
that Paul specifically mentions all three persons of the Trinity, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the triune Godhead, which reminds us that the entire Godhead is involved in, actively involved in my sanctification. I think that's pretty cool. Why did Paul include this reference to the Holy Spirit? Why did he use this reference to the Holy Spirit? Let me remind you of who or what the Holy Spirit uh, does and how the Spirit works in us. When, you are, when we are saved, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is a seal that God has given you by His Spirit. God gives you uh, the Spirit as a seal, uh, uh, His Spirit as a guarantee of our future hope. That God, of our future, of being in God's presence forever, a ceiling. Uh, I always like this. When I think about a ceiling, some of you who, uh, how many of you either used to or do can whatever, fruit or vegetables, right? And it can be on the shelf. Are you the only one? Anybody else? All right, all right. A few of you. Just, uh, yeah, that's all right. Good, good. As long as you tithe your... Your, your goods to the pastor. That's, we accept it. First fruits, you know, we're old covenant there. Um, but you know whether that, those peaches have been sitting on the shelf for a year or two or whatever, that you know immediately whether they're going to be spoiled the moment you open the, can, the top, right? Because you will hear the pop. That means that they were sealed properly, and if they were sealed properly, they won't spoil. God has given us the Holy Spirit as a seal to keep us from spoiling and rotting. So that's what the Holy Spirit does, our guarantee of future inheritance. But God's Spirit is not just a promise for the future, God empowers you now to live today. The Spirit takes up residence in your life. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God makes His home in our heart, in our life. But we are continuing. We haven't totally yielded to Him. That's sanctification. I am yielded. I'm being, I am yielding, and one day I will be fully glorified, yielded to Him. But I'm in this sanctifying, growing process. I'm, being, I'm yielding to the Spirit. I'm walking in the Spirit. I, I'm, 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 I'm growing in grace. You with me? That's the work of the Spirit. That's why Paul says in Galatians that we are to continually be filled with the Holy Spirit, literally to keep being filled with the Holy Spirit. It isn't just a one-time affair. It's a continual being filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5, 18. And as we grow, as we walk, Galatians 5, 16 says that walk by the Spirit. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not do what? You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the context he says that this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. He brought up there at the end of verse 8 about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's presence, as I said, is one, 
It legitimizes, gives you the assurance that you're a child of God. Remember 1 John 3, 24, that by His Spirit, we know that we are the children of God, okay? But also, the Spirit of God, as I said, in the working of the believer, is empowering us to bring us and grow us in sanctification and holiness. You and I cannot, remember Jesus said, it is necessary. It is even to your advantage, he said, that I leave you, that the Holy Spirit would come. We cannot, the reason the Holy Spirit is so essential, you can't be saved without the Spirit. You can't walk this life without the Spirit. The Spirit is not some option that you're going to tack on later. You cannot exist in the kingdom of God without the sealing and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And everything that Paul is saying is impossible in human willpower. But it is all, it is all possible as I'm walking and empowered and dependent on the Holy Spirit to enable me to do what is not naturally, what I'm not naturally inclined to do. Let me give you a scripture that I always, and I like the way the NIV translates it. And it speaks of the work of the Spirit, the work of grace, the grace of God. Look at Titus 2, 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. The grace of God. But look at verse 12, the way, it, the, way the NIV words it. It teaches us, this grace of God, it teaches us to what? Say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That gives me hope. Holy Spirit's teaching me to say no. God wants us to live and pursue Him. He wants us to live out the life. He wants us to be who we are. He wants us to reflect who we are. God wants us to pursue Him. He wants us to live for Him. And that, my friend, is oftentimes in choices and temptations and sins that result in some of these areas that have to do with our sexual behavior. Let me give you a, a quote from John Piper. John Piper made this statement I thought was helpful. Knowing Jesus and His supremacy enlarges our souls so that the thrills of sex become as small as they really are. Nothing else is big enough to enlarge the soul as God intended and make little lusts lose their power. You struggle with sexual thoughts, sexual temptations, and you're a Christian, get a bigger view of God. That the supremacy and the truth of God, I'm not talking about knowledge, but that's why, again, you can't separate the knowledge of God from worship to where my intimacy and my knowledge of God becomes stronger that I'm not going to trade, I'm not going to trade anything to displease Him. And it isn't just a merit type of behavior. It means that the satisfaction and joy that I have in walking in His light is so far greater and satisfying 
that I wouldn't trade it for anything. You see, that's why we talk about the transforming power of the gospel. Why it is good news. It transforms. It changes. There's no person, regardless of whatever sexual brokenness they have, there's no person that is beyond the reach of the grace of God. You see, the Bible identifies that regardless of a person's background or brokenness and sin, sin, just another word for brokenness, another word for sin, we broke, we're all, listen, we are all sexually dysfunctional. If you are from Adam and Eve, and I think most of you are, guess what? You're all dysfunctional. There's all, there all of us have in our families and the human race, because it is marred and distorted, what God said it is good. That has been marred and distorted. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul speaks of this transformational community, this church that was riddled, yes, with sexual immorality, but was walking and striving and pursuing the grace of God. Paul wrote and commended in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, through 11, he said, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And look at verse 11. And such were, were. That means this church was full of ex-adulterers, ex-homosexuals, ex-revilers, ex-drunkards, ex, 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 ex. But such were some of you. But now, what? You were washed, passed. You were sanctified, passed. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here it is, by the Spirit of our God. What does a church look like? Looks like that. Looks like that. Amen. And I'll close with this last quote from Piper. God took the record of all your sins, all your sexual failures, that made you a debtor to wrath, and instead of holding them up in front of your face and using them as the warrant to send you to hell, he put them in the palm of his son's hand and nailed them to the cross. God's will is for us to live out the life of who we are now in Christ. Christ has taken all of our sexual brokenness brought by sin and has nailed it completely and finally to the cross. Why? So that we can be free, no longer in bondage to these things, and to live freely for Him.